Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Ms. Sarah Lambert of Goldsmiths University will talk about the roles of parody, satire and non-participation in the Crusades. Welcome everybody. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I hope to interest you by fleshing out some of those ideas in a bit more detail. Um, I'm never sure when speaking to sort of open-ended audiences like this just how much background about the Crusades you're familiar with. So I'm going to start by racing through the entire history of the Crusades in two minutes, um, (laughs) which is quite an achievement since normally it takes me an entire year to get a bunch of students through this. Right, here goes. (coughs) The background for the Crusades can be seen in the period of economic and population growth that happened throughout Europe in the 10th and 11th century. This growth led to political expansion on all the European frontiers of the key post-Roman states, so that's France, Germany, Italy, and England, depending on how you look at it. They are expanding in the north, taking over Scandinavia, converting the Vikings. They're expanding on the eastern frontier, um, conquering those empty forests that are also full of inconvenient Slavs. They're expanding in the south, in Spain, pushing the southern border towards Granada. In Italy, taking over southern Italy and Sicily and accessing the Mediterranean. This expansion also fueled a period of quite radical church reform, sometimes described as the Gregorian reform movement, um, and sparked off a set of Mediterranean rivalries um, over trade and the domination of territory, and particularly ports. This coincided in the late 11th century with a sudden and very dramatic period of political fragmentation in the eastern Mediterranean, caused first of all by the invasion of Seljuk Turks from further east who dismantled and took over the old Abbasid Caliphate and then subsequently in the, 11, sorry, in the 1080s by the rapid death in succession of five key members of that family group and the rival caliph who held sway in Cairo which caused a complete political breakdown in the eastern Mediterranean. That crisis also created an opportunity, an opportunity for rapid expansion and conquest by the states bordering the north of the Mediterranean. Pope Urban II, in 1095, preached a great sermon in the city of Clermont, urging European knights, especially French knights, because they were his favorite, but European knights in general, to gather together in an unofficial, leaderless, unstructured army and to march like pilgrims to Jerusalem to take back those holy cities from their invaders. Uh, The fact that those invaders had been there since 630 skipped his attention. This ragtag army set off for Jerusalem in 1095-96 and eventually reached the holy city in 1099, Uh, many of them dead, of course, by then, only a few of them actually got there, conquered the city in a quite remarkable set of fortuitous circumstances which enabled them to do this. Um, But the remarkableness of that circumstance was then fed back into European culture um, and received as an act of miraculous affirmation both for the church reform and for the idea of a pilgrim army. 
That idea having been established in people's minds, the pilgrim army then became uh, a motif and a model for people to replicate again and again and again for the next four, five, even 600 years. Um, some people would suggest that Europeans hadn't given up on this idea when the Enlightenment came around, but that's maybe arguable. They held territories in and around the city of Jerusalem from 1099 up to 1187 with the advent of Saladin. Uh, a rump of those territories on the Palestine coast and including the city of Antioch stayed in Christian hands until the 1290s and the island of Cyprus until the 1390s. So there is nearly 300 years of occupation um, which in entailed 300 years of repeated attack and defense and re-establishment and loss and grief and then re-attack in order to try to recover those lost territories which imbe further embedded in the, in the culture of Western Europe. This notion that the pilgrim army was the way to do this, because after all, the first time round it went so well, but also a sense of loss and displacement and confusion in that they were never able to reach that extraordinary pitch of success again. There is a huge body of literature from the medieval period concerning these events. Um, historical sources in Latin and latterly in the new vernaculars, French, Spanish, German. Uh, documents, letters, charters, largely clerical in their origin, although there are a smattering of secular contributions. Those secular contributions tend to be by participants or advocates or admirers of the crusading project. But in recent years, historians have started to look at a wider range of material, not just by looking at vernacular sources, but by looking at the unofficial. Um, sometimes this is called popular literature, but you might also call it unpopular literature in that it has been ignored by historians for such a long time, although, of course, it's a favorite of linguists. Um, material which you might describe as fictional, although of course the boundaries between the fictional and the factual in medieval writing are hazy to say the least, some might even say non-existent. So material which is more evidently fictional, which is more popular in the sense that it's meant to be more widely read, but also in that it addresses the interests and concerns of a much wider audience than the clerical and aristocratic elite. Using this material, we hope to find a wider range of responses and ideas and opinions to get a better understanding of how people responded to this repeated call to get up, take arms, take the cross, leave home and family, and travel thousands of miles to kill people that you haven't met yet. <coughs> Moving on, step two. This is our hero for tonight, Reynard the Fox. Cunning and sly foxes are not just a, medieval, uh, not just a modern phenomenon. Um, I'm, one of these days, I'm going to sufficiently engineer things that I can start this talk by showing you a clip from the Disney cartoon version of Robin Hood. Are you familiar with this? <coughs> you on the back rows are, obviously. I'm not sure about the people down the front. It's a lovely reworking, a reincarnation although I'm not sure how knowingly, a reincarnation of the fox legends of the Middle Ages and earlier, um, in which 
Robin Hood, the, the eponymous hero, is played by the fox who excels in cunning and trickery and deceit, who always defeats his enemy, the Lion King, um, in the form of King John, um, who is lovable and endearing, but nonetheless a rogue and a trickster. These fox stories were so popular and so widespread in medieval Europe that the eponymous fox became just that. Before Reynard became popular in the, Medi in the Middle Ages, the French word for a fox was goupil. That word completely disappears from the language. A fox is now a Reynard, but it is his proper name, it's his given name that has become the, gen the generic term for any fox. <coughs> the stories probably derive at least in part from the Aesopian material which was transmitted from the classical world to the Middle Ages, partly as teaching exercises for teaching language, particularly for teaching Latin, but also for teaching moral ideas and maxims. And this is one of the most famous ones, uh, one of the most famous stories, which certainly comes from Aesop, in which the fox flatters the crow, telling her what a lovely singing voice she has and how much he'd like to hear her sing, so that she drops this huge chunk of cheese... Um, that's what's represented there. And then the fox can run away with it. And that really sets the scene for the fox legends to come. He is clever, sly, cunning, always concerned for his stomach above everything else, and concerned to get an easy meal by deceiving and thieving if he can. This little nub of material rapidly assimilated a much wider range of folklore motifs, but also became the focus for a number of hugely inventive authors in the 12th century and beyond, who incorporated into their stories a great deal of epic and romance material, copying the Chanson de Geste and the great love stories of the Middle Ages. They endlessly embroidered the tale of the fox, the wolf, the lion, the bear, the donkey and the sheep, the cat and others, in a highly flexible and very varied set of stories which are, which are usually described by literature historians as branches, just as a, a way of distinguishing the bits from one another. There is no single author, there's no single authoritative text. Just throwing together a Reynard story was something that you could do if you needed a quick laugh or a quick dinner. The anthropomorphism of these stories is intriguing. Um, and in that sense, it shares a lot with the Disney motif. Um, the animals can be dressed or not according to the convenience of the story. Um, they exchange two legs for four at the drop of a hat, as it were, um, switching rapidly from living in underground dens to living in houses and even castles. So the, the degree to which the animals are anthropomorphized changes even in mid-sentence, let alone from story to story. So there isn't really a, a consistent pattern of how the animals are used. There are some stable points. The fox is always the sly, cunning, selfish, deceitful, violent, dishonest, untrustworthy, crude, scatological, sexist hero. The lion and the wolf always represent secular social superiors. The, the, the lion is, gen, is, is almost always the king and the wolf is generally in the position of a duke or prince. They mouth moral maxims and moral 
presumptions and platitudes, but they are constantly fooled and ridiculed and defeated by the fox. That is the sort of stable core of the story, and that, that never changes. The roles of other animals vary enormously, although sheep are often clergy. I think this is not an accidental reference. Another stable feature of these stories is the extraordinary degree of violence. Um, and yet, the kind of rubber quality that the characters have to bounce back from these violent episodes and be ever-living, even though they're killed over and over again. Um, like Tom and Jerry, the fox and his comrades, colleagues, are immortal, despite frequently really startling injuries and quite graphic descriptions of very, very nasty events. In particular, the fox is frequently threatened with hanging. Um, I've forgotten to move on the pictures. There we go. This is um, a very popular motif of the fox stealing geese. Um, this is one of the things he does most commonly. And you'll note, I hope you can see, that he is carrying off the goose by kind of trailing it over his back like that. And this is such a common motif in image and in carvings that it has spawned a genre of modern literature which debates whether or not foxes can actually do this. Um, biologists and, and zoologists argue about this possibility. Um, I hope you can see that one. It's perhaps not as clear as it might be, but here Reynard, on this side, is being chased by this very irate housewife in the middle from whom he's stolen something. And while she's concentrating on chasing him away, waving a stick here, her pet dog in the background is eating the family dinner. Um, this is a, a carved misericord, which is a very, very common place to find images of the Reynard stories. Here again, he's running away, another goose, another housewife, and you can see again he's got the goose trailed over his back like that. This is not to suggest any kind of naturalistic focus on the part of medieval artists, but rather an innate conservatism, that once somebody has worked out how to draw something one way, all his successors for generations to come will draw it in exactly the same way, partly to aid recognition amongst non-readers. And here we have the fox pretending to be a doctor. He's dressed up here with his little pouches of pills and medicines around his waist. He's actually being summoned to treat the Lion King in this episode. He's going to treat the Lion King so horribly it would make you very unwell to hear the details. Um, and here he is in front of the lion, the very sick-looking lion, suggesting all sorts of nasty potions that he should take to get better. As I said, these stories are immensely varied and produced over a very long period of time, beginning in the 12th century, the vernacular versions, the French versions that we have, and persisting right through into the 15th and 16th. They're amongst some of the earliest printed materials. There's uh, a very famous Caxton version of these stories. They're translated into German, into early Dutch, um, into Spanish, and into Middle English. Here we have the fox in the middle, preaching to a pair of nuns on either side. He's very often pictured in these extraordinarily anti-clerical contexts, either fooling clerics or pretending to be a cleric, or both. Um, 
From this enormous variety of stories, we can't really establish an internal chronology. It's not like the stories of Arthur or the, the romances of the Charlemagne cycle, where you can get a sense of who was doing what to who over a period of time. Um, instead, there's just a sort of rambling spiraling of events which are impossible to sort out. And there have been various attempts over the past 100 or 150 years to sort out a chronology for these texts. We can't even use internal episodes to date them because many of them are so generic that you can't pin them down. What we're left with is a sort of terminus ad quem argument of surviving texts where we, where we, where we have a text version, we know it must have been written by then but we don't know how much earlier than that it was written, except for one example, which I'll come to in a little while. Here, he's preaching to the geese, as you can see, dressed up as a bishop and standing on his hind legs, uh, but only with the mitre, not with the whole robe. So he preaches to the geese in order to lull them into a false sense of security so that he can catch and eat them. Here again, he's preaching to the geese before he entraps them, and this is another misericord carving. Um, they don't photograph terribly well, but they are quite stunningly gorgeous when you see them in the flesh. Here, he's dressed completely in Episcopal attire with the mitre and the robe and the crozier. And here... He has been caught by a flock of outraged geese. This is a really nice picture. It comes up very well. You have a flock of outraged geese who have caught and hung the very naughty wolf. And what I think is useful from a historian's point of view about this range of material is the way in which the stories subvert the normal set of symbols and understanding of medieval discourse. It parodies a whole range of genres, romance, religious literature, epic, love songs. Um, it satirizes nobility, politics, feudalism, marriage, the courts, the church, medicine. Um, every facet, really, of social, economic, and political life in the Middle Ages is the subject of a Reynard satire at some point in the stories. So we can look at what Reynard has to say about the crusade for a cruelly alternative view. Oh, let's go back. We'll stop there for a moment. Um, and I hope that this alternative perspective gives us access to the potential views of the audience of those great crusading sermons that were preached by bishops and archbishops and monks across the course of the high Middle Ages. My working title when I started researching this project was Why Not to Go on a Crusade? And it was inspired um, by a very well-known historical chronicle, the um, Chronicle of the Counts of Anjou, which was written right at the time when Pope Urban II was preaching the First Crusade. Not content with his great public open-air sermon at Clermont, he then made a tour across large parts of southern and western France <coughs> in order to continue to publicize his crusade and to solicit support. And he visited the Count of Anjou. He brought the Count of Anjou many beautiful presents, including books and, most famously, a golden rose. He made his speech in front of the court, and then he went away again. And the Chronicle doesn't say anything else at all. Off he went. But the Count of Anjou didn't go on the crusade. He was unconvinced. And I was very curious as to why it would be that somebody would go through all that procedure and then not actually sign up. Because, of course, the bulk of the crusading literature which we, with which all historians are familiar, from the Gesta Francorum and Guibert of Nogent, Jean of Joinville, and so on and so forth, 
They are all full of reasons why you should go and why people did go. Reasons for saintly kings and noble princes and hard-working peasants to get up and leave their families. But nobody tells us about the 90% at least of the European population who said, no, thank you, won't do that. Now we come to the good bit. On one notable occasion, Reynard was about to be hung because he had been caught and tried for the rape of the wolf's wife. This is a remarkably popular story amongst the corpus, and it comes up over and over again. <coughs> what that says about medieval audiences, I leave to your own imagination. About to be killed, about to be hung, Reynard declares that rather than take the death penalty, he will do penance, he will seek forgiveness, he will renew his life, spiritual and secular, and he will go on crusade. And the king allows him to do this. Noble and the wolf allow him to get down off the gibbet, put the cross on his clothes, and go off on crusade. <coughs> now, taking the cross is a key symbol for crusaders, it derives from the very first events of the Sermon at Clermont, where strips of cloth were cut up so that potential crusaders could quite literally sew them to their clothes as a badge, as a marker of their new changed status. Not only ordinary bits of cloth, but precious clothes. The, um, the guest of Francorum, for example, tells us that Bermond of Taranto ripped up his most valuable clothes to make crosses for his participants to sign up with. Um, also monks' robes, starting with Bernard of Clairvaux in the 1140s. This is a, a motif which is reiterated down the ages of the preaching monk actually tearing up his clerical robes for people to make crosses out of. So this is an ordinary piece of cloth which gains huge symbolic symbolism and which has a sacrality all of its own because of the way it's being used. This is what Reynard did with his cross he ripped it off his clothes, threw it behind him, wiped his bum with it, and then tossed it on the ground, saying, Lord King, take your rag, and may God confound the joker who burdened me with this scrap and the pilgrim's staff and bag. He turned his tail towards the beasts, and they mean tail, um, and threw it at their heads, saying to the king loudly, Lord, listen to me. Nur ad-Din sends you his greetings through me, the good pilgrim. All the pagans are in such fear that they're all running away. The cross is, part of, is, is a key part of the symbolic systems of medieval culture, a kind of badge language, which was used, used not just amongst crusaders, but in a whole wide range of social and cultural situations. Um, the yellow badges that Jews were obliged to wear in some cities, pilgrim badges that marked you out as a special kind of returnee from a journey, coats of arms which designated your allegiance and also your status in society. These badges, these ways of symbolizing your identity, ways of changing and adopting your identity, are crucially important parts of the symbolic code of the Middle Ages. And what Reynard is doing here is simply shredding that idea. He's demonstrating that what at one moment is a sacred symbol, at another moment is simply a rag. And the word that he uses, um, the rag, when he says, Lord King, take your rag, the word he uses there is the word that is used for bandages, swaddling clothes, rags used for cleaning up, 
And it's also the same word that translations of the Bible use for the menstruous rag, which is used as a metaphor for the evil that Israel has committed when they're exiled to Babylon. So it's a really nasty, icky word, rather than simply a neutral cloth. He's saying something very important by describing his holy cross in this way. So Reynard is subverting this symbol in the way that he continues throughout the texts to subvert all the symbols of medieval culture and society. He subverts the meanings of words too. King Noble agrees to let Reynard do this. He agrees to let him off the gibbet and go off on crusade because, because Reynard is pro and courtois. Pr- um, noble and courtly, courteous. Bearing in mind that the reader has just read about how he trapped the wolf's wife and what he did to her. And the king knows this because this has all been laid out at the trial. But when Reynard says, oh no, I don't want to be hung, I'll go on crusade, this is what the, the lion says to him. Yes, you can go on crusade because you are noble and courtly. But the reader knows that what Reynard is doing is rather like Br'er Rabbit wanting to be thrown into the briar patch. He is just making any excuse in order to get away from the threatened punishment. The, the king also suggests that Going on crusade is actually a hopeless cause. As well as a penitential cause, it's completely hopeless. He says, if Reynard doesn't die, and most people who go off on these journeys die, he says, then he'll return morally ruined. He says, they go away good and they come back bad. It happens to everybody. Now, this is an extraordinary reversal of the meanings of words. We as readers know that there's no way you can describe Reynard as good. And it's hard to imagine how, having been away on a trip, he could come back worse. But this, this upsetting of ideas and re-evaluating of words and simply lying um, is a crucial part of the way in which these stories are constructed. We can see in this echoes of concerns that are expressed in more traditional crusade texts. Um, for example, famously, there is the Chronicle of Würzburg, which describes the Second Crusade, um, describes the participants in that crusade as a bunch of criminals and 'er ne'er-do-wells. And that is why, he says, the crusaders were a failure. We can see in the work of James Vitry, who was actually cardinal of the city of Acre under the crusaders in 1215, he wrote about the destructive influence of foreign life, how people left Europe and went to live in these warm and unhealthy climates and took up all sorts of nasty foreign habits. Um, And this contrasts wildly with his own active preaching of the crusade. He left us a record of how he preached to people where he advocated the crusade as a rehabilitative penance. So on the one hand, preachers are saying, no matter what your sins, take this vow, take the cross, go to the east and participate and your sins will be forgiven. And on the other hand, the writers are saying, the crusade army was full of escaped criminals and therefore, of course, God wasn't going to let them succeed because they're just bad. And... Once you get there, the influence of living in a foreign country is going to completely dissolve any moral fiber that you had left to you. So there is this immense anxiety expressed in the elite rhetoric of the Crusades, which is then being turned around and used purely for the power of jest by, uh, for example, Reynard. Let's go back a step. Nur ad-Din sends you greetings. That's a very interesting point. 
I said earlier that it was very, very difficult to pin down when any of these stories were written, but for this passage at least, we can pin it down. Nur ad-Din became famous in the West um, when he defeated the armies of the Second Crusade, prevented them from taking the city of Damascus, and then nipped in shortly afterwards and took the city of Damascus for himself, creating a great Anatolian empire. Um, but it's not until then, it's not until the 1140s that anybody in Europe would have known what this name meant. And then very shortly afterwards, by 1174-75, that name is totally eclipsed and the famous foreigner, the famous bad guy that crusaders have to go and fight, is Saladin. Nur ad-Din is never mentioned in popular literature again. Saladin assumes all the qualities that Nur ad-Din used to have. He is then kind of replaced into story texts so as to replace the ancient figures, the ancient bogeymen that existed before him. So we can actually place this story in the third quarter of the 12th century, which is fun from a geeky medievalist point of view. Right. Moving on again. <coughs> One of the Reynard stories has an extensive ramble through crusading. And it's the story known as Reynard the Emperor. Briefly, he takes over the animal world, replaces the Lion King, and that's how he gets the title of Emperor. The story starts off when Reynard responds to the Lion King's call to defend the kingdom from the camel's invading army. Now, it's obvious what the camel is meant to signify, but in case it's not clear enough to the audience, we're told later on that the camel has an army full of elephants and scorpions and dragons and snakes and other oriental animals. So we know that he is meant to represent the evil world of the East and the threat of Islam. The idea of defending the kingdom from the camel's army is an important clue to the ways in which uh, the popular audience was understanding the crusade. Throughout crusading literature, this idea of defense is served up over and over again, even right at the beginning in 1095, when defense cannot by any possible stretch of the imagination be actually on the cards. What the European armies are doing is dashing to the east to attack people who are no notion whatsoever of going to Paris. So the, the, the idea of defense is important because it justifies, it legitimizes a war. And the rhetoric says that it doesn't matter that it was 400 or 500 years ago. Jerusalem used to be part of the Roman Empire. When that Roman Empire became Christian, Jerusalem was an important part of the Christian world. And so we as Europeans are entitled to go and take it back as an act of defense, even though we've not had it since the 630s. So on his way to respond to the king's summons, Reynard jousts with the slug, slowly the slug, um, and steals his flag because the slug is the, the king's standard bearer. He steals the flag, he steals the sword and lance and the falcon. And all these things are very important badges. So we come back to this issue of physical signs of your identity and status. Having stolen those key signs of identity and status, he then appears at court in a sort of disguise, repersoned, re-embodied. And he is offered the role of standard bearer to the king because Reynard is brave and has great courage. He's a great warrior and comes from noble ancestors. Though it's as though every time a new adventure starts, the rest of the animals completely forget that they've ever met Reynard before. And he's able to reintroduce himself in a new guise, in a new personality, and fool them all over again. He's described as well brought up. 
um, which is actually a lovely pun. The word is enseigné, and it means well brought up, but also it means well signed, well symboled, well badged. But rather than going on crusade, he has other plans. Reynard delegates the standard bearing to one of his sons who marches off with the Lion King's army. And Reynard himself stays at home to guard the palace, the kingdom, and the queen. The, um, the, the march off to fight echoes in many, many interesting ways the commonplace stories of crusading activity that have been traced through the earliest, the Gesta Francorum, Albert of Aachen, through um, Orderic Vitalis and Odo of Doi in the, the mid-12th century, and most famously through the, the Anglo-Norman history of Ambrose, who wrote uh, the story of Richard the Lionheart's crusade. So there is a, a sort of minimalist confession. The Lion King's army kneel down and confess their sins, um, and they're given this wonderful absolution uh, Lords, don't doubt that these faithless folk will have no power over us. I know that power that you have. Let us fight fiercely, however well these men are armed. Let us cut them in two and kill them. Cut them in two there is a good word. The word is détranché. Um, and it's a very specific word in the literature of the Middle Ages. And it means quite literally to slice somebody right in two from top to tail, down the middle. Um, Again, it's one of those things which has induced uh, a sort of literature all of its own amongst boys who care about toys and weapons, about whether it is actually possible for a knight with a sword to slice a knight in armour right down the middle from head to toe. And some people think it isn't possible, and it must be a sort of diagonal cut, but you never know. Anyway, we're going to go out there and détranché all those, all those nasty camels. Um, as I said, it's, it's a very commonplace word. It's a story which is told about Godfrey of Bouillon in the Albert of Arkham Chronicle. Godfrey is reputed to have split somebody in two straight down the middle. And it is told of Richard the Lionheart in the Anglo-Norman Chronicle by Ambrose. Richard went out to battle and split somebody in two right down the middle. So the use of this word in the Reynard context clearly echoes the sort of epic style of battle descriptions. Amongst other animals on this crusade army is the hedgehog. Not many hedgehogs go into battle, but this one does. He's called Spiny the Hedgehog. Um, animal names are stunningly original like that. Um, but the reason for a hedgehog in the middle of battle, I think, is interesting. The motif of hedgehog actually has an interesting history. St. Sebastian who was tortured and killed by being tied to a post and shot with lots and lots of arrows. The description in his vita, in his sacred life, describes him as being stuck with arrows as full as a hedgehog. And this is not a unique occurrence. That expression, stuck with arrows as full as a hedgehog, is used again for St. Edmund, who was martyred in East Anglia by the Vikings. And it's used again in Ambrose's Anglo-Norman Chronicle of Richard the Lionheart's Crusade. At the Battle of Jaffa, Richard rode out ahead of his men, got mixed up in a terrible melee with the enemy, and had to be hauled out of danger, and he emerged from the press of battle, stuck with arrows as thick as a hedgehog. So I think that the insertion of the hedgehog into this story is a reference, again, to that kind of romanticised literature of battle. Meanwhile, back at the house... Reynard, we knew this was going to happen, Reynard steals the treasure, the palace, the queen, and the kitchen. 
it is actually quite hard to tell which he's more interested in, the queen or the kitchen, especially given that this set of the story started out with Reynard starving in his burrow and leaving behind his starving wife and children to go out into the world and find some way of getting food for them. Of course, he forgets about that, or the audience forgets about it once he gets embroiled in this story. But here we have him in love with the queen, who he loved on terrine, loved with his stomach. The king's victorious return, once he's defeated the camel's army, is followed by him having to besiege his own castle to get it back from Reynard and battle to recover the queen from him. Reynard is captured and once again threatened with death. There we come back to Reynard hanged, as we've seen him so many times before. But he begs pardon again. He apologizes for what he calls a breach of faith. Now, breach of faith is a... It's an accurate way of describing what he's done, but it doesn't really testify to a modern audience just how bad this is. He has broken faith by stealing the king's castle and his treasure and his wife while he was officially placed to guard them. This is an act of high treason, not just a breach of faith, but he's terribly, terribly sorry. In a parody of repentance, which is ever repeated and ever believed and always forgotten again at the start of the next adventure. It undermines the very idea of repentance and of absolution if these things can be called upon in any momentary crisis as a way of getting out of a sticky spot. So Reynard sets out on yet another penitential journey, laughing over his shoulder at the lion and his court and at and with the audience. This casual amorality, this disregard of social conventions, anti-clericalism, anti-authoritarianism, invites a casual collusion from the audience, turning the sacred cows of the church upside down, left, right, and center. He satirizes political bonds, including the pseudo-affective personal language of feudalism. Whatever audience we can assume for this work, whether it was elite or popular, whether it was mixed, men or women, lay or clerical, you have to assume from from the the text that their readiness to engage with this upside-down discourse meant that they were ready to understand their normal social, political, cultural and religious bonds in this highly satirized, highly scatological way. They laugh, the audience laughs at his easy revelation of the powerlessness of these social structures that they have to pay lip service to in the ordinary world. In Reynard's world, figures of authority are gullible fools. Penance is a handy trick. Crusades are either a way to escape the noose or an opportunity for theft and adultery. And I think it's nicely ironic that Reynard appears so frequently on misericords. A misericord is a wonderful invention of the Middle Ages where many churches had these kind of tip-up seats for the clergy to use. Usually set slightly higher than these, it wouldn't work. But on the underside of the tip-up seat is a little ledge that sticks out so that even when the seat is up and you're technically standing, you can perch on it like that. And under the little ledge... 
See, there's the little ledge for perching on, and underneath the ledge, you find these wonderful images. So the bottoms of clergy are being supported by the most virulently, grossly scatological, anti-clerical images that you can possibly come up with. Thank you. (laughs) 